Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. All right, audience, let's go down another path. I'm going to bring a cricket with me too. We've got a little ambiance here, a little uh, background sound effect here in the interview, but I'm I'm actually really looking forward to this. We're going to be spending time here with Matt Barnum. He's a reporter for Chalkbeat, and those of you in education know of Chalkbeat, um, fantastic reporting, and I think a great resource and service to the education industry writ large. Uh, Matt had an article about the state of learning loss, uh, seven takeaways from the latest data, and I think that this is a subject that we need to be diving into. I hear it. <laughs> I hear it uh, just in my own community at the grocery store and at the soccer uh, field. And so I think it's important to find out kind of where we are, what people are doing about it and what the data is telling us. Matt, how are you today? I'm good. Uh, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely, Matt. So so let's let's dive into this. Uh, talk about the questions that were were asked in the latest data set. Tell us where the data comes from and, and what was the, the general takeaway and why this rose to the, I guess, the attention of we need to get we need to get Matt on this uh, on this article. Sure. Yeah. So right now there's a lot of data that is is coming out about student achievement um, at the end of last school year. Um, so there's data from state test scores. There's going to be national data coming out in the next couple of weeks, but that's not out yet. And then there are these sort of like assessments that are created by private vendors that a lot of schools give to their students. And those are national, like the NWEA, which is, uh, they, they give an assessment called the MAP, I believe. They're widely used in thousands of, thousands of schools. And so what researchers with some of these like private testing agencies did was compile, and they have been compiling scores of students over time since the pandemic hit. And basically they're asking the question like, how has the pandemic affected student learning? And by student learning, they mean math scores on math and reading exams. And we can talk about, you know, how valid are those exams. I personally, I think they do tell us something meaningful. They don't tell us everything, though. Um, and so what we've seen from a variety of data is that in the first couple of years of the pandemic, so that would be the 2019-20 school year, so school shut down in the spring of, of 2020, and then the 20. 20, 2021 school year where a lot of schools had disruptions, a lot of schools were remote for a significant part of the school year. Students did make progress. They did learn some things. They just learned less fast than they normally would. And so that gap between students, between where students were or where students are and where we would expect them to be if it weren't for the pandemic and school disruptions, that's been called learning loss. So now we have some more data. So that was the first like couple affected school years. There was a significant gap of learning loss. Um, and now we have more data from, through last school year. So that's the spring of 2022. And what that data showed, and I'm mostly referring to the NWEA data, but some other data sets generally show the same thing, including state tests. That data shows that students have started to make up ground. And so I do like to think of this as glass half full, glass half empty. So the glass half full is that students, we stopped the bleeding on learning loss and students have started to recover, especially in earlier grades. So students in elementary schools have generally made up about 25% of the learning that, that they have lost. Um, in middle school, we're not seeing much makeup at all. 
But the fact that students made up anything from last school year, which also was an unusual year, there were still health precautions, still disruptions, still quarantines, um, a lot going on, staffing shortages, teacher stress. The fact that student made up, students made up some ground um, is really, is positive. So I'll pause there and then if you have any follow-ups and then yeah. I can also talk about the glass half empty. Well, I'm glad you said about the glass half, half empty. I think the one of the things that I think is interesting, and I'm curious in, in, in your research and people that you talk to, and maybe what your perspective is, is the assumptions that we've made along the way, mm -hmm. right? So learning loss, I mean, that concept has been here. The, the pandemic didn't have to bring sort of bring that to the forefront, right? I mean, we've had a number of different things, just life happens, transitions, uh, you know, we've had staff shortage. We have all kinds of reasons why a student may or may not learn at the same pace we had expected at the beginning of time, right? Or that year. And I'm wondering about the questions and, and a couple of things would be around professional development for teachers. How, like, what are questions are we asking to make sure that we are supporting educators? Because you talk about a learning curve for educators during the pandemic, they went from physical classrooms to remote and digital environments where they didn't have as much training and who can blame them because we didn't anticipate a pandemic. But I'm wondering about sort of the cause and effect or the variables that impacted learning loss. And are we asking deeper and more thoughtful questions so that we're not just pinning it on, let's say, math and reading? Hmm. I think uh, your point about the professional development and the fact that teachers were ill-prepared through no fault of their own to teach remotely, you know, I think is very well taken. And I think that's why one of the reasons remote instruction did not go nearly as well as, as many hoped, though I, though I think it didn't go as badly as, as some feared. I think there are two pieces of it. I think part of it, I, I think there's reason to believe that remote virtual instruction is just inherently not as good on average for most teachers and most students as in-person teaching. And then, but even, even accounting for that, you know, we would probably guess that if teachers had to do remote instruction again, they'd be a lot better at it. So, you know, the co common sentiment was that every teacher felt like a first year teacher. So we probably didn't get the best, most of the deluxe version of remote instruction where it's been given just because teachers were not well prepared. Now, as you alluded to, I don't think that was anyone's fault, least of all teachers. It wasn't a reasonable thing to prepare for the, the, the pandemic, but that's what ended up happening. And, and students, you know, at least as far as we can tell, based on the math and reading scores, have borne the consequences of that. Have you seen anything emerge? And maybe you haven't, and maybe maybe uh, we will as a result of your reporting and maybe our discussion. But are, are we seeing that people are curious about learning loss or the, the concept of learning loss around not just the typical classroom or the typical and expected student and outcomes based on that you know, maybe the majority, but about special needs classrooms, students with that are sort of atypical in their, in their needs uh, and the way in which, my goodness, they were sort of stripped of opportunities because they weren't in person that were vital to their ability to connect and to grow at the expected rate for them. Um, are we asking questions about the populations that are not in essence right down the middle? Sure. I mean, I think we've the what I can speak to is the data that we've seen, and I'm I don't know that we've seen the data cut focusing on students with disabilities, at least the NWEA data that I've looked at very closely, and that's a great question. Um, 
like I would be curious, and again, I, I I just don't know if they've looked at it. They may well have done. I would be curious if we saw disproportionate learning loss among students with disabilities. That certainly seems po possible. Um, we have seen evidence of disproportionate learning loss among low-income students and Black and Hispanic students. So that's a widening of the test score or opportunity gaps. And I think a lot of people have been really concerned about that. So I'm so glad you brought that up. I know that was in the article uh, and I encourage people to go check that out at, at Chalkbeat and uh, Matt's, Matt's column. Is, look, under the auspice of the of the pandemic, we can say, look, minority students, um, you know, marginalized students had a, a greater learning loss. But could a cynic, and, and when you were reporting and doing your research, I'm, I'm just wondering if, is it an, is it an, the, the word that comes to my mind is excuse. I'm not trying to say it would be an easy excuse, but some of those things had to have pre-existed, right? They were there prior to the pandemic in, you know, equitable access to resources across the board that would help to support growth and development from what we're acquiring and learning and knowledge and skill sets, right? And it just maybe exacerbated the problem when we couldn't be physically in person. So are, is there going to be sort of a, almost uh, an analysis, a forensic look at the data to kind of say, all right, fine. At, at the service level, we see that minority students, uh, Title I schools, whatever that is, that they weren't, they have more of a learning loss. Mm -hmm. but actually, all that did was reveal kind of some, some things that have been there, some deficiencies in our structures that it just was exacerbated because of the pandemic. So it just feels like a danger in the education industry is to take the data at face value when it's like, no, 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 no. Maybe that's an indicator of something deeper that we really need to have substantive uh, answers for in ways that we haven't in the past. And I'm just wondering if you're sort of seeing that there's going to be a 2.0 in the data we're looking at so that we really understand what learning and loss paired together actually mean in context. I think there, I have certainly heard um, a version of that sentiment, which is, you know, what what I think has become a sort of a popular line is we can't go back to normal because normal wasn't working for a lot of kids. Um, and, you know, I think that's exactly the, the sentiment that you're saying, you know, these like a, a test score and opportunity gaps and, and, and other gaps based on race and family income and socioeconomic status have long existed in our education system and in American society. So this isn't new. Um, we have just seen the pandemic for a number of reasons that we can get into exacerbate the inequities and inequalities, um, but they didn't create those inequities and inequalities. Um, I think that, however, that the, that sentiment is a lot easier to say than to act on. Um, you know, we have been trying to, as a society, trying to close these opportunities, or at least in our words, saying we've been trying to close these opportunities, opportunity and test score gaps for some time. And, you know, we actually have been in some, in, over some stretches, seen, seen some progress on that. Um, but right now, I think people are, schools are just trying to keep their heads above water. And like, they're, they're just looking at the kids that they have and saying, you know, we, let's try to catch them up. They are. They may not have the capacity, um, or time, or wherewithal to do that sort of reimagining um, that some might want. And I'm also not sure exactly what that would look like. So I, I, I think that sentiment has been more a sentiment than a concrete policy agenda. 
or something that would impact the 2.0. Let's talk about feedback that you got from the article. Um, and if you didn't get a whole lot, is that indicative of sort of just general apathy for just being burned out from the pandemic and anything related to that, that we kind of want to just, we want to wash that away and sort of just look forward. Tell me about that. Well, these days, you know, for reporters, most most of the feedback you get is on social media, aka Twitter, <laughs> um, which is fine. That's a it's a good uh, good at times medium. I'm trying to remember what feedback I got on 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 this article. I mean, I I I think there is pretty widespread, but not universal, agreement about learning loss exists and it's a problem, and we need to do something about it. And I, I think there are some. There are some critics who are like more skeptical about that that learning loss is really bad, and and they might say that like test scores are really bad measures, and this isn't really telling us that much. Um, but I think the like mainstream of the education debate really believes that learning loss is bad. We should and we should do something about it. Um, now, I think where there are questions is well, what should we be doing and is what we are trying to do is what schools try are what schools are trying to do does that seem to be working you know the the federal government has provided about 190 billion dollars to schools which is a huge amount of money um, and some of it has to be used for learning loss and a lot of people think that a lot of that money should be used for for learning loss um, and i think one thing that is complicating about this data is it tells us you know it, it tells us what it tells us but it doesn't tell us why um, now my read of the data is that like something must be working, um, or we wouldn't see students starting to dig out of that learning loss hole. Um, but we have no idea from this data, what is working? Is it extra tutoring? Is it summer school programming? Yeah, it does feel like we're is, at the infancy of understanding it, right? Having yes. a, a, a deep, thoughtful understanding of, are they just, are we seeing some improvement just because we got back into a routine, you know, like right. the value of routine could be much more impactful than we ever thought. Right. Or, or like teachers may just be doing a better job because they know students lost a lot of fitting just a little bit more content into a 180 day school year. Um, or parents may be doing things differently and they say they see that their kids have fallen behind. So they're spending more time on their homework, more time reading to their kids, whatever it is. Um, so there's just nothing. You know, I, I can speculate forever, generate different hypotheses, but there's no definitive answer on what what explains this and also like what could we do to ex sustain or even accelerate progress i have some you know thoughts on that um but none of them is based on you know rigorous data at this stage more conjecture just because you're exactly. around the space yeah i think but i would say that that's the important component is is i think people both in the press and in practice having the conversations so that we don't let things you know, just fall through the cracks where we just sort of assume, well, we're we're back to whatever normal is because normal was not equitable, right? Normal did not meet the needs if we're striving for success across a number of measures um, and verticals. I don't think we were hitting the mark. I mean, there's there's room for improvement, maybe the optimist would say. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, obviously, there's room for improve. There was room for improvement in the American education system before the pandemic. I think that's not a controversial statement. I do think, you know, going back to the glass half full, um, this is a case actually that Tom Kane, a, a Harvard researcher who has, who has also done some work on learning loss and shown that remote instruction um, had a negative effect on, on student learning. You know, he's made the case that one thing that the pandemic did reveal is 
the benefit of normal in that inequality expanded when normal ended because of the pandemic. And I don't, you know, I don't want to be too Pollyanna-ish about it and pretend that normal was good or, or good enough. But I do think it is helpful to keep that in mind that the normal, absent that normal, bad things happen to the most disadvantaged kids. Um, and that the typical kid, including the most disadvantaged kid, kid before the before the pandemic was making meaningful progress during the school year. And and that's important too. Matt, let's talk about what you're working on now and for the remainder of 2022. What either are you currently working on that you can share and or big questions that are piquing your interest? Yeah, well, I'm uh, I'm about to take a leave from from Chalkbeat in a in a couple of weeks. Uh but so I I'm racing to to finish a, a number of different things. Um we I had been covering the COVID relief funding, the $190 billion that I've I talked to you about. I've been covering that for, for some time now. And that is, you know, deeply intertwined with the learning loss question because you know a lot of folks want that money to be used to make up learning loss. And there are questions about how effective that money, how how effective that that spending has been. Um, and so I've been covering that and I'm even even as I'm leaving Chalkbeat or taking leave from Chalkbeat, I'll still be very interested in that question. I'm also working on a project now about school funding systems, and this is actually this is a little bit connected to to the COVID relief, um, and also connected to our our conversation about like was normal good enough? And basically, this piece is going to show or raise questions about the pre-COVID approach to to funding schools and whether the that approach was fair. And we seem to be the the COVID relief has blanketed over the problems with um, our school funding system, perhaps, and we are, but, and that money is running out. And so we are about to return to the, the old status quo. Um, and then there's just, you know, a lot of stuff going on as schools start to return, you know, our COVID mitigation measures, are those completely going away? Like, are, are we still thinking about any mitigation measure or, or not? Um, there are lots of conversations now about teacher shortages. Um, I did a piece recently digging into the data of, on that. And um, I've also looked at whether there's been big increases in teachers leaving the profession, um, which actually to date there have not been. Um, so yeah, there is a, a lot to, to keep us reporters on the education beat busy. It is not a boring industry, so I'm sure on your leave, you'll be ready to, to jump back in. Yeah. Uh, Matt Barnum from Chalkbeat, uh, we want to thank you for your time and, and your efforts here on this story. It's an important story. You can go to chalkbeat.org and check out Matt Barnum. He's got his email at the bottom of his column, so you can get in touch with him and give him the scoop. I know a good reporter is always looking for his scoop. Uh, thanks so much, Matt. Of course. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed the conversation. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.